Welcome back to another episode of the Hitchcock Minute. Each week, Movies by Minutes hosts examine the 1959 Alfred Hitchcock-directed thriller North by Northwest, one minute of screen time per episode. I'm Dave Forsyth. And I'm Todd Lucas. We are the hosts of the uh, Forever Tomorrow Minute? No. Um, <laughs> Edge of Tomorrow. Edge of Tomorrow. But I, I understand right. your meaning. It uh, feels like it's never going to happen. Well, it's because we don't work very hard. Don't worry. Updates, once we get, uh, yeah, yeah. Once we get there, it'll just fall off a cliff. It'll be easy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's that's what they say. Just well, you know, for start me, rolling. it's oh. for me. It's going to be easy. I mean, I'm not doing any of the editing, so. Yeah, I suppose. <laughs> All right. Well, yes. So look for the edge of tomorrow minute across your across your social media. Um, I don't know where that <laughs> voice came from. But yeah, we, uh, start on Facebook and look for us there. That's that's the the funnest place. No, the easiest place. Yes, the most common place. The most yes, the the lowest common denominator. Place exactly. To find us. Yeah, just give us a like over there, and when new episodes, when any episodes come out, um, you'll you'll be amongst the first to know. But that's not what we're here to talk about today, is it? Not at all. Today we're here to talk about. North by Northwest, minute 69. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I see how you made me say it this time. Yeah, I did. <laughs> okay, let's, I mean, I guess this is Bill and Ted's favorite minute. Generally um, speaking, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Minute 69 opens uh, on the previously talked about Mercury Monterey. We talked about it yesterday because it was in yesterday's minute as well. The Mercury Monterey convertible speeding out of the frame and it ends on Roger Thornhill averting his eyes from a mini dust storm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So (laughs) as the Mercury travels past Thornhill, uh, the camera from his perspective pivots to to follow the car, right? So that it sort of switches to a POV, POV shot and it sort of turns to follow the car in much the same way. Like if you've watched auto racing, typically you're, that's how the cameras either have a long shot or if they're watching the cars go by, they sort of grab it when it's at a distance and then follow as it passes. So you get it coming, you get it beside and you get it going kind of deal. Right. It's a pretty subtle move here, but. So you're thinking that maybe Hitchcock is, is, is kind of the source, you know, the, 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 the prototype basically for, for, uh, and, and NASCAR filmography, I guess. I, I hadn't thought about it that way but um i mean people assign him all sorts of uh crazy things so let's let's go ahead and give it to give him that as well sure so he's a big race fan that's great alfred hitchcock is the father of modern nascar (laughs) i'm just just gonna say it's out there it's in the headcanon now great yeah when the mercury hits the hits thornhill's spot in the road the shot reverses to show thornhill kind of making the same camera move with, you know, with his body, with his head. Right. So, it, so it's sort of a, a mirroring the, it, you know, it's doing point of view shots. And it's trying to pretend that there, there is no hardware out here with him taking these shots. <laughs> it's just him. We're recording through his eyes and yeah. then some weird omniscient, you know, viewer that looks at him when he seems, you know, disappointed or blinded by the sun or the dust. He's a very stoic camera though, I guess, because his, his hands, Still stay in his pocket, in his pockets, um, and his suit still looks impossibly neat and clean for 
having been shoved in a small suitcase uh, and then ridden around on a bus for two hours and then standing on the side of a dirt road. And Yeah, he's know. very well pressed for having ridden on a bus at all. So yeah. yeah, right. Yeah. If you've ever been on a bus, you know what it does to both your clothes and your spirit. Yeah, my, my yeah. spirit is definitely more crumpled than his suit is, even now. <laughs> and, and you haven't ridden on a bus for a long time. No, no, it's been decades. <laughs> The uh, baby blue Mercury never never slows down. It doesn't acknowledge Thornhill really in any way. As the camera lingers on the car, disappearing in the distance for a couple of seconds, longer than you than you'd think it would. Again, I think trying to show some of that distance and isolation. We cut back to Thornhill. His his brow furrows a bit, and he looks down, a little disappointed, maybe. He seems a little disappointed, but I don't think he was believing that this baby blue car was going to be the car. I think in just, just, just wait a few seconds for his next reaction. And I think this bears me out. I think he's just thinking, you know, maybe, maybe, but nah, I wasn't really thinking it would be. Yeah. I, I tend to agree with you. I think if he was upset that that first car that came by wasn't his rendezvous with Kaplan, um, Maybe he realizes that no, of course not. That would have been too easy. It's sort of that that sort of thing. It's like he he's he's maybe a, a little upset with himself for getting his hopes up, thinking it would be so simple, right? Right. I, and we are talking about you know this is spy stuff. You know, a baby yeah. blue car is not cool enough for spy stuff. Yeah. He he does let out a bit of a a mini sigh, sort of inaudible at this distance, and shuffles his feet around a little bit. <laughs> he gives well. you the. Sort of aw shucks. He does Again. hate waiting. <laughs> well, yeah, right. It's his nature competing with uh, his sense of style, I think. But yeah, he, he shuffles his feet around a little bit, almost like a little <laughs> I uh, guess. stomping, pouty kind of thing. Just a little bit. A little bit. He turns to look back to the north, um, and he sticks his hands even deeper into his pockets. Um, and I think he's sort of resigning himself to, it's like, no, I'm, I'm here. I'm going to be waiting for a little while. That's, you know, the sort of wait that seems interminable, you know, when you don't know what you're waiting for, you don't know when it'll be there. And, you know, every, every bit of unknown that you pile onto your wait sort of makes the seconds quadruple, really. It's like when you're walking somewhere and you don't really know where you're going or how far it is, it seems like it takes you forever to get there. And then when you walk back, you're like, oh, it was only three minutes away. It's right. Yeah. Been there, done that. We we get sort of a repeating pattern of, of the shots that we saw earlier where he looks at something and then we see his view of it again. But he so he looks directly across from him uh, and the empty field is still empty, still immense. Um, he, his camera shows the exact same spot across the street, the same buildings off in the distance where we talked about maybe they're um, – a coal power plant or something like that. Something. Yeah. But it's just pretty much the same shot. Uh, and it's hard to know if he's, I don't know, starting to ponder the remote remoteness maybe, or maybe trying to figure out what those buildings are just like we are. <laughs> so, yeah. Cause he, he knows he's not gonna, if he, if something goes wrong, he's going to need to start walking mm. and that's the closest thing you can see. So he's wondering if it would be worth going that way, if the worst comes to worse. So. Right. Yeah. So maybe he's trying to figure out what his next stranded step is, right? Like, right. Can I take the bus back to Chicago? Do I need to, I don't know. I mean, who knows if he's got enough money to get on the bus again? Yeah, probably. 
I'm sure that he does. He was going to rent a car to get down here, so I'm pretty sure he's got spare. He does seem to have a bottomless pocket of cash. So the camera returns to, to Thornhill, and he seems maybe satisfied with whatever he's seen across the, the highway, and he sort of blinks blinks into the sun and shuffles his feet again, and he, he turns back to look to, to what I'm calling the south, but that's all assuming that he really did come on a north-south highway from Chicago. And we see his POV shot looking south, seeing another dark speck in the distance. It's getting bigger, and the shot lingers, and you start hearing the sound of the approaching vehicle come up in the mix. As it as it gets close enough to start making out what it might be, cuts back to Thornhill, and he's staring intently to the south, and, you know, see, maybe getting his hopes up again. He he, he raises up a little bit. Making his hands start little, coming out of his pockets. Yes, he's sort of making himself a little taller, and yeah, trying to maybe he's trying to get a better view of what's coming down. Um, his squint gets a little more intense and concentrated. Is he thinking, is this, is this the guy? So, yeah, I think he's hoping it is because yeah. it's black. That's a right. spy car color. It's black. <laughs> yeah, so we, we cut back to the approaching vehicle, and it's uh, we can start to see th- that it's black, and it, it looks larger, shiny. It's the kind of car that Thornhill would probably expect someone like Kaplan to be driving, right? Right. So that that sparks his imagination a little little more, thinking, oh, th- this could, maybe it is this easy. But at this point in time, I don't know, Do we, we don't automatically think that spies all drive Aston Martins yet. So it's, uh, I think maybe this uh, 1954 Cadillac Fleetwood 75 might just fit the Thornhill spy view, right? And it sounds good to me. I mean, I, I thought maybe it would be first time I saw this. I didn't know what yeah. we were looking yeah. at. Now, the, this this caddy is weird to me because it, um, it it just feels to me like it's up on its toes, like it's a sprinter. Yeah. But it also is kind of like a fat sprinter that never really gets up to speed, but is still kind of up over his toes, almost right. about to fall over on his face. Good, good form, but it's not yeah. very fast. Exactly. And, and you could, when you can hear it just as it's passing him. You can yeah. f- just hear how much it's trying. It, it, you know, I think I can, I think I can, but it never actually does. Whatever yeah, it, it is. <laughs> it does bring a decidedly different note than the Mercury did. Um, in, you know, an audio note as it's passing by. So, but yeah, it, I mean, it is a big car. It is, it is huge. And, uh, it, it does have, I don't know. It's got that sort of fifties look of, I'm going fast, you know, like it, yeah. it's, uh, it, the, at this point, the, the Cadillacs were probably the premier of luxury American cars. And these, um, these Fleetwoods especially were more luxurious because they, they were actually hand built interiors or hand, the, the coaches themselves were hand, hand built. And I don't know exactly what that means in, in 1950, 1950s America. But when you say to me, like, uh, a a custom coach builder that generally means the interiors and the, the seats and, and all the stuff on the inside, the people who make the, the wood paneling out of real wood and put the ashtrays in just the right place. Cause it's 1954 <laughs> and you know, very important. Sure, yeah. Make sure that the leather is, is hand stitched. There was actually a company called Fleetwood that was a Pennsylvania based company that actually had history dating back over 300 years to an English coach builder when they were actually building real coaches like 
horse carriages and things like that. And so it's kind of all comes from that, that same tradition. So this would have been a real creme de la creme kind of, of American luxury. So all the bright, shiny Chrome and it, it does, the car does have sort of a, a forward lean to the, to the passenger compartment, right? It's got a little bit. Right. Um, Which of course is something (laughs) I kind of uh, associate that with uh, Looney Tunes cars and Looney Tunes always would lean forward when they were trying to drive fast. (laughs) Sure. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Then they kind of looked like that when they were doing it. So that's, that's probably what my problem is. Yeah. And it does have those sort of big round white wall tires, like a a Looney Tunes car would, would typically have that look kind of like a balloon. Yeah, I'm guessing the guy that drove that, the like I think the most is a, the little short gangster. I can't remember what his name was, but he had the big hulking right-hand man, and him and Bugs Bunny would go around around. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. I've, I've, I've gone off the deep end on that car, so. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. We, uh, we have plenty of time to talk about it, so. Um, as the, as the caddy gets closer, uh, we cut back to a shot of Thornhill and we do see him get a little more excited. Um, his hands, like we talked about, come, come halfway out of his pockets, right? Almost like he's going to pop out and greet whoever's driving the car, right? Like, Oh, Hey, I I didn't see you there. (laughs) But, uh, his gaze shifts from just looking at the thing in the distance and it almost looks like he's trying to you know, connect with the face of the driver or make, make out the face or, or make eye contact with the driver, maybe Uh, something like that. He's just looking for anything to happen right at this point. Yeah. Yeah. He's just, he's already been disappointed twice, (laughs) you know? Yeah. Come on, man. Come on. Stop for me, but be uh, this mythical creature. (laughs) Yeah. We go back to the car and we can see that it's just one lone male driver in the car, uh, which would make sense. That could be Kaplan. He would probably, come alone to meet him but the camera does the same pivot to follow the caddy as it did for the merc uh, for the merc and we have the same cut back to thornhill and he's makes the same turn as the camera does and as we see it speed past into the distance we cut back and forth between thornhill and the car uh this time instead of the one long shot of the car disappearing into the distance each cut back to thornhill really shows his disappointment <laughs> you know his his shoulders slump a little more and his, his hands plunge back into his pockets and uh, his head slumps down a little bit. This he kicks the dirt around a little bit more, sort of more of that aw shucks kind of affectation. Yeah, but it doesn't last quite as long this time because before the caddy gets out of sight, he sees something else on the horizon come in the other direction. That's right. The last cut of the caddy in the distance shows something larger coming, um, something even bigger than the, than the Fleetwood. Each each passing vehicle, or we assume this one's going to pass, seems to get larger and larger. So uh, I don't know. After after this, maybe a blimp will come by or something. But <laughs> we see the the two vehicles pass each other in the distance, way off in the north. And Thornhill this time seems to adopt a uh, like a fool me once posture. Like he's mm. he's settling in. Like I'm not going to get my hopes up this time. And cut back to the approaching large thing. You can't really tell what it is at this point. Maybe it's a bus. Maybe, you know, another bus of busload of passengers. This could be like the bus that the next bus that was behind him in Chicago coming down the same, same route. So it could be the Kaplan is maybe on the next bus and had been in Chicago and followed him the whole time. I, we don't know, but 
he seems resigned to to play it cool this time, right? Like, yeah, that would be pretty awesome bus service, don't you think? <laughs> you know, buses every three minutes. Yeah, right. Well, you know, within they're an hour and a half of travel or so, right? Or hour and a half, two hours. I forget what it was, but to, to still be within three minutes of each other, that would be pretty impressive. Unless they were supposed to be twenty minutes apart, and Thornhill's bus was just really slow, and Kaplan's bus is just really fast. Well, every one of these prairie stops, somebody had to stop at, you know. Yeah, I always assumed that this was the prairie stop. Like, there's only one. And it's Pretty like, much. It's called Prairie Stop, and that's, like, its name. Where, like, the next one down the road is going to be, like, Buckwheat Stop or something. Added, <laughs> you know. Okay. Well, I don't know. Yeah. But that's yeah, yeah, I mean, other than the Buckwheat Stop, I think you got it right. <laughs> okay. Okay. So, yeah, the next one down the road is, like, Hoosierville stop. There you go. Yeah. That's more accurate. Yeah, right. But yeah, so we, we see as this is getting closer, we can start to make out that it's a freight truck of some variety. Not like a not like a modern 18-wheeler type of truck, but it is a big box like hauling truck. Got a dark green cab and the words Zephyr Van Lines painted on the side in the same color as the cab. I don't know, but it's a zephyr yeah it well we see what happens when it drives past yeah it kicks up a, a big dust storm like a zephyr would exactly yeah and uh, do you think this was intentional you, you know, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, they didn't they just pick up whatever was available or did they make sure they picked the one that says zephyr because that's what they were intending to do with it oh man you know so many things could be attributed to that like yes they did this beautiful art direction of of the word zephyr on the side of the truck to because i mean it, it sort of is a gag right as it passes it it kicks up almost a comedic level of of dirt into into thornhill's face face so yeah i guess if you were going to make that the main gag of of this stretch of cars passing you by um, you might, that might've been intentional. Yeah. But you know, Zephyr van lines actually sounds like a real thing. Yeah. So I don't know. I'm, I'm wondering if it was just a, one of those coincidences, you know, they just like hired what they could find, you know, what yeah. was available nearby was, we just need a big truck. That's all. Yeah. And there definitely were, I mean, there is an automobile. I think it was also a Mercury named the Zephyr, but that was from like the badging, the rebadging days. So it just kind of looked ah. like several other Fords and or Lincolns. So, so it wouldn't be unprecedented for vehicles to be named after the Zephyr. So yeah, I don't know. It is, uh, I think it's a, I think it's a, we'll chalk it up to a happy coincidence, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if it was an intentional choice. The dirt gets kicked up into Thornhill's face and we sort of see him turn his body sort of toward the truck. You know, he's, he's turning, his back into the breeze and so letting it pass over him so he doesn't get the, the dirt all in his eyes. His hands are still defiantly in their pockets. Well, there's a bit of a continuity error there because on the long shot showing him in the truck as the truck passes really dangerously close to, <laughs> yeah. to Cary Grant, um, his hands are free of his pockets. His, like His fingertips might still be in them. Just as the truck goes by, you see it. Boom. And then they go cut back to the close up shot from the waist up and his hands are tucked back in. But at that point, 
the back of his hair is blowing up at a nice ducktail, which is <laughs> the worst I've ever seen Carrie's poor hair. Yeah, that's true. Even after hiding in in an enclosed train booth for who knows how long, he still came out looking better than this. So, Yeah, I, I was always wondering about that. Uh, not my minutes, but yeah. seriously, there's room for a human being in there when they're closed? Yeah, I mean, I guess it wouldn't make sense for the train company to install like an Iron Maiden type, you know, stabby <laughs> device in there. Although it would cut down on stowaways, it might it might unnerve oh, yeah. the public to, you know, see the stains or, or find the dead bodies, right? So. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. You put your bed down for the night and something rolls out. Yeah. <laughs> well, we can only hope that whoever had train car crushing moments thoroughly explored the depths of an Iron Maiden type enclosure. So. But probably not. So, um, no. yeah. but yeah, so you're right. I, I think I, I just saw that section of the minute go by where Carrie's hands in and out. I mean, I guess you could certainly attribute it to, you know, as the truck went by, because what the truck goes between the camera and Thornhill, right? So in that moment where he was behind the truck, he could have, jammed his hands further back down into his pockets but right right you know anything could happen but i'm pretty sure that you know these were not shot at the same moment mm-hmm. maybe not even against the same background which reminds me that these these uh out in the the bright daylight shots uh really bring up some weirdness in the the film process of the day because they almost look like green screen shots yeah we had some of that problem uh when they were walking along the train tracks in the south street station as well Right. Um, but like these when especially the close up shots, Carrie looks so sharp. Yeah. You know, his 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 hair, his his suit, everything's so sharp and the background really looks like it's, you know, maybe projected against the screen behind him, which is a, a technique I know they were using, but there's no way. There's no way. I yeah. mean, seriously. I think it's just, it just comes down to the equipment in the film. Yeah, I do really think it's an artifact of maybe even this um era of color film. You know, because that the not at this point, I don't believe all you know color was the the default for for films. You know, I think the the big expensive movies were were coming out in color, but not not everything. So uh, yeah, I think it may have been an artifact of of the processing and and maybe even the lenses. You know, they may have had to have a certain focal depth to keep carry that sharp. But then, I mean, the the next, especially in something like this, where the the next item in the background besides the bus stop sign is pretty far behind him. So, right. And if you're looking kind of at his face and so his hair is basically on the horizon line and that is a huge difference in focus. Yeah. Cause that horizon line looks like it was painted on by a a kindergartner (laughs) and his hair looks like it was stenciled in with a technical pen. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think we may be just getting, some artifacts of, of film technology of the time, but it is a little unnerving to those of us who, Oh gosh, I don't know who've, who've lived through the, the uncanny Valley of, <laughs> of Oh uh, boy. Yeah. Yeah. We're still kind of doing that a little bit. Just depends. Yeah. But I, I don't hate it. I just, it's different. I, I do kind of enjoy the fact that some of these old films really have parts that, I mean, that look fantastic. I mean, a lot of all the, Stuff in the foreground with the actors, they look great. They look like they could have been shot, you know, this year. As long as they keep good masters of these films, they should still be able to hold up to theatrical viewing. Yeah. 
And that's, you know, that's good to see. <laughs> yeah, I did. I think it was just a Blu-ray, not like a 4K transfer or anything like that, that I had initially watched this on in, in preparation for the podcast. And it was definitely super crisp and clear in in parts i'm thinking of towards the end when we when we start to see the house um the house in oh yeah north dakota yeah the house is good and i think something about it the the dark scenes there just made the colors pop a lot better yeah it was more natural than this scene which we suspect was graded aren't you know artificially to to emphasize the brown yeah entirely possible so yes it, it it does throw the modern viewer maybe a little who knows at the time whether anyone would have considered there was any sort of compositing going on here probably not no then part of the modern vernacular right they weren't real savvy about any of that nobody cared there's like oh look it's a movie look how awesome this is yeah all right so i do have one super nerdy question for you here okay all right so if you were dming the north by northwest role-playing game and the zephyr passes by our hero what what sort of damage do you think a, his hair would take, and B, his suit would take. Just from the, the passage there? Yes. No. Um, his hair obviously took an, a nice D8. Um, his suit should have taken at least a D4, but it looks miraculous afterwards. So, yeah, so he must have gotten obviously. a good roll. Yeah. yeah, he must have enrolled wall ones, baby. Or maybe, <laughs> you know, somehow passed a dexterity saving throw without actually moving. Yeah. yeah all it was was that, that subtle twist into the wind. Well, and, and we don't see it yet, but in the next minute, you'll see a little bit of residual damage to the hair. But I think he's got some sort of hair healing potion because it does clear mm. up by later in, in minute 70. Well, it does sound like something that Cary Grant would have on hand. So, yeah, I'll, I'll allow it. Okay, great. I'm sure that there are other people listening to this who are sufficiently nerdy that would, that would enjoy that sort of proposition so, <laughs> that I would ask. But, okay, a few more questions for you. Why do you think Hitchcock pulls the same gag three times in like a minute and a half? He's, he's, he's trying to pull focus. He's wanting to make sure that you're not paying attention to anything that would give away what's about to happen. Okay. And, and, and as we'll learn in the next minute, it, there's more to it. So he's pulling these three gags mainly just because the first car too small wouldn't be able to do anything second car was bigger and cooler but on the other side of the road and then this car well not a car you know giant truck almost hits him and messes up his hair (laughs) right and do you think the increasing sizes of the vehicles increases the effectiveness of this gag um i think it's the entirety of the Mm -hmm. gag it's it's just supposed to be intensifying with each pass so you're thinking, you know, okay, either something's got to give or the next time this happens, it's going to be like, you know, a bus and it's going to hit him. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I read again in that um, Hitchcock Truffaut book that, that he talks about uh, the MacGuffin of this film being the fact that, that there, there's nothing really being traded, right? Like the, the whole the whole reason that that Van Damme is is the villain is because he's trading international secrets, but there's no description of what he's actually doing. And you know, there's there's nothing really specific at risk. Like there's no list of spies that he's trading. There's no secret formula or nuclear codes or anything like that. It's just eh, international secrets. 
I kind of yeah, boring stuff. Yeah. You know, every day behind the scenes. I kind of disagree that that that's what the MacGuffin is, though. I think just the notion of Kaplan is the MacGuffin, right? Like he, right? It is. I mean, because he the 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 notion of Kaplan as a thing is what sets everything mm-hmm. in motion. Nobody really cares about you know the secrets or right. you know they it, that's. That's it's a motivation for the FBI or CIA or whoever this is that's running this gig to keep pushing and to let um, uh, Thornhill dangle right. for the time being. But, you know, really, it's this whole Kaplan thing. It's what keeps the villains moving. It's what's keeping Thornhill moving. Right. That's the dance that powers that be want to happen. It keeps it keeps the bad guys busy while they try to get take care of business. Right. Yeah, and it's Thornhill's not doing this to stop the sale of international secrets, right? He's doing this to, right. to clear his name, to to become the the unaccused innocent man, or you know, to clear clear the name of the innocent man who's accused. And then you know, also along the way, there's a girl, but that's you know, yeah, the girl's neither here nor there. His entire motivation uh, up until you know, even beyond where we are now is. Basically, I'm getting killed out here. I need to stop being a target. <laughs> I want to get back to New York. I want to get back to my life. This is ridiculous. I can't even believe this is happening. Yeah. Okay, so one last question. Okay. Are you pissed at all that you're getting the minutes before some of the most famous minutes in U.S. cinema? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the only minutes, the only bit of this movie that I had seen before getting to work on this project were those minutes. I literally had, for some reason, just seen them on YouTube within the past oh, year. Oh, well, there you go. You know, and, and that was my actual first viewing of any North by Northwest. I knew the name. I knew who was in it. I knew who directed it. And that was all I'd known forever before that. And I'd seen that and I was like, ooh, I wonder if we're going to get those minutes. So I figured, yeah, we won't. We'll get something after or something real early on, you know, whatever. It'll be great. I didn't realize they were going to give me right up to the edge of that and then let me hang. Yeah, we we literally just, we, we get the, we got the uh, Chekhov's airplane in the last minute. And that's about as close as we get to danger in, in this sequence. So, yeah, um, not to ruin minute 70 for anyone, but nothing happens. Yeah, no. <laughs> well, I mean, something happens, but nothing, nothing adventurous or dangerous or anything really. But yeah, again, this minute really is another dialogueless, musicless minute with a lot of long, slow shots. You know, I think the the quickest shots we get are the back and forth between him and the Cadillac, and those happen. It really makes like an entire phrase of cuts, right? Where it's a long travel it doesn't really cut away take away from the the fact that it feels like a much longer shot and it's covering the entire distance from horizon to horizon um, and then back again yep. right? it's sort of ping-ponging back from the horizons right it just kind of makes me wish that uh thornhill's uh shaving companion from earlier minutes were out here to give us a little oh, eyebrow yeah. action it might spice up the conversation <laughs> yeah we don't need dialogue we got eyebrows exactly yeah. All right. Uh, okay. Well, anything else that you wanted to talk about in minute sixty nine? Uh, no, I think I'm pretty much done with sixty nine. Mm-hmm. 
<laughs> okay, well, um, <laughs> on that note, you can find the Hitchcock Minute podcast on Apple Podcasts and Google Play, and probably like Spotify or something too, or Stitcher. Who knows? I, I'm just making this thing up. I'm, I don't even really know. Um, but the main site, HitchcockMinute.com, will also have episodes posted there. So you can connect with us on social media and any of the other Movies by Minute hosts. Uh, at the man on Washington's nose on Facebook. That's a group. Go join it and discuss with other hosts and fans of said podcast or on Twitter at Hitchcock minute. And then you can join us for minute 70 of North by Northwest tomorrow on Hitchcock minute. Goodbye, Mr. Thornhill. Wherever you are.